the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Thank you for being here. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the Daily Wink. Uh, See all these uh, uh, interviews we do. Ed Martin's Pro-America Report. We'll get to what you need to know today, what you need to know, the most important story. I'll walk you through it in a few moments. Uh, but first, let me tell you, in a few, a few minutes, we will talk with, uh, uh, sh- uh, sh- excuse me, Sauraba, hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Sharma, about the American Moment. American Moment is a new organization uh, that is going to focus on uh, making sure that public policies protect a sovereign nation, kind of the America first stuff. A lot of these groups are popping up. I thought we'd get to talk to a couple people and find out exactly what's going on here. So we'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, also we will have a chance to visit with our old friend, Dr. Brett M. Decker, and talk about um, what is happening and uh, what he's up to. So we will get to that. All right. Uh, But first, what you need to know. Well, the, the, the news out of the swamp is that Judge Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland is a judge on the 8th, excuse me, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and he was, has been a judge for a long time. He was nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court by uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, and of course it was famously blocked. He was going to take the Justice Scalia seat, and um, Merrick Garland has been confirmed as the Attorney General of the United States. So he'll be leaving the bench. First thing you need to know is the reason why he's a great pick for Biden is that immediately you get to nominate a replacement for Merrick Garland, who's probably in his mid to late 60s, and now a replacement on that very influential D.C. Court of Appeals uh, can be filled by the Senate and by President Obama's nomination. So that's the smart move there. It's always smart. I can tell you, anybody who's worked in an executive branch, at the, especially at the governor's level, which is what I did, but also the federal level, Anytime you can uh, promote a judge and give yourself another chance to fill that spot behind it, it's kind of win, win, win. You know, so Merrick Garland, uh, that's a big deal. Now, a record more, more Republicans voted against Merrick Garland than voted for him, although some voted for him. But here's what you need to know. Um, Merrick Garland will be a caretaker. He won't be a leader. And what I mean by that is if you saw him interviewed during his confirmation hearings, he's got the temperament of a judge. He's kind of quieter and, you know, court of appeals judges, appellate judges in the federal courts. They're like it's like a monastic existence. You are you're kind of a a, a legal monk. You spend a lot of time reading briefs. You spend a little bit of time hearing arguments and you spend a lot of time writing. And it it's it, it, it tends to create in its judges a kind of um, they all seem sort of slower and calm and cerebral even if they're not smart that's how they seem so Merrick Garland but he's a follower if you saw him interviewed he's not a leader and here's what you need to know and this is extraordinary to contemplate. And I, I, you know, I guess it happens in every, um, in every administration. It happens in both parties to some extent, although I don't think it happened with, uh, Trump. And that is this, that there's a set of bureaucrats that cycle in and out of government based on who's in charge. And so what we have now is Merrick Garland will be nominate, will be a nominally the, the attorney general. But right below him, 
will be a set of people. Uh, uh, Lisa Monaco Monaco is one, uh, a woman whose first name fails me. I forget now. Her last name is Gupta. Uh, a man named John Carlin. And all three of these people were senior level White House operatives uh, in the Obama White House. And but more than that, they were at the heart of not only the uh, Flynn uh, targeting and the targeting of the campaign or, or uh, the post uh, election, uh, post 2016 election effort, but also they went out of office and spent their time on CNN and other places being these incredible critics of the Trump administration. That's normal. But also claiming that the uh, that the thing that we had to worry about was the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax. And really, that was a hoax. I mean, that was legitimately a hoax that they promoted. And they're back in charge. Now, I don't know. I guess it's possible. I remember in the in the George W. Bush presidency, there were some people that were accusing, if you remember this, they were accusing Karl Rove and others of, of uh, politically uh, uh, targeting politi- uh, for politics um, U.S. attorneys. Now, the U.S. attorneys are the senior prosecutors for the uh, for the for the presidency. You know, the president's in charge of the executive branch. The executive branch includes the enforcement, which is the attorney general and U.S. attorneys fall within that. So I've always thought, you know, you, if you're president, you get to put your team in. But it does strike me as particularly galling in the modern era where so much is known about the Lisa Monaco, for example, and Gupta and Carlin and how they were at the heart of what should be a shameful chapter. Well, it is a shameful chapter in history, but it should be known as a shameful chapter in history. And it doesn't feel like that. It feels like precisely the kind of opposite, that they're not particularly embarrassed. They're not particularly ashamed. And they're back in power. And while I'm willing to concede that perhaps this was true in other eras, you know, but we we, we, we might not have known it. What I'm saying is now we know it because of the rise of of uh, of social media and the rise of uh, of sort of the sort of 24 hour, seven day a week attention to politics. We now know who these people are. And just shouldn't it just be true that by perception just because we don't want the perception to be that we're not going to have these people that acted so poorly in charge, shouldn't that be worth? Isn't that enough? I mean, the one thing I'd say about Merrick Garland is because he's been on the federal uh, bench for 20 years or so, he doesn't have a particularly colorful life. I mean, he's written some opinions I disagree with, but he's generally he's a judge. It's kind of a benign feeling thing to your to the naked eye, to the perception, but. But Lisa Monaco and and uh, Gupta and uh, Carlin, these three, they were tar Susan Rice. They were targeting American citizens. They were unmasking American citizens. Well, what you need to know is when it's known that people acted poorly, if not at least it seems to me unethically, if not illegally, I don't think anybody proved illegal illegality. Remember, Susan Rice is the one that lied about Benghazi. You know, she told all those lies that it was from a video or whatever. I mean, bald faced lies. But when it's known that people are dishonorable, let's say it that way, in my opinion, and yet they're promoted and they get right back into power, doesn't it kind of um, embolden them? Because one of the things that would be important about um, moderating people's behavior would be that they could get caught under the law, right? Which is one thing you don't want. If you get, if you're doing something, if you're if you're about to do something wrong, and you think, well, I'm probably going to get caught, you might not do it. Hopefully, I mean, the, the the starting point would be that you're an honorable person. And you say, I don't want to do things that are against the law. But if not, if you're just being, if we're, if we're being honest about how many people think, they're like, well, I'm going to get caught. I'm not going to try that. 
But if you learn that if you if you eat and then under the law, but if you also learn that even if you try it and get caught, you won't even pay a, a, a legal penalty. You won't pay that, but you also won't pay a sort of social, a larger social penalty. You won't even be penalized from going back into power. That's pretty problematic. Both sides, by the way. Whoever you think that you don't like, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, when you have a system where there is no public accountability, even to sort of be embarrassed by it, that's pretty, that's pretty problematic. I, I, I kind of think we've reached a point where it's not just that there's no public shame. Maybe we lost that a while ago, but there's not even a public shaming. In other words, there's not it, maybe maybe people have lost the instinct to care about being shamed. But we used to, it's like the opposite of cancel culture, by the way. What the what the left and the media want to do is to try to cancel people they don't like. And they do it, by the way, by public pressure. And they do it a lot of times by uh, making people feel bad about supporting someone. But now we have people that are caught, and I guess this is the problem. They don't think, and neither does the media or anybody else, that what they did was so wrong. And what you need to know is when that's what we've come to, what you can guarantee is more abuses. When it's transparently clear that you can act like Monaco, Carlin, and Gupta, and Lisa, uh, Susan Rice, and others, and not pay a price under the law... And not pay a price under the uh, under the culture in the in the larger culture, and not even pay a price when you come back to go get a job. Used to be you do something like that, Lisa Monaco or somebody, you wouldn't have be able to get a job in the government. You wouldn't be certainly wouldn't be able to get confirmed. So what you need to know is, I think we've gone to a sort of new low. I, we've gone to a new low, and Merrick Garland's confirmed he'll be a caretaker, and we're going to see a weaponized Department of Justice. I fear. And it's not going to be weaponized against, um, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton or uh, it's not going to be weaponized. It's going to be weaponized against Donald Trump, on his, against his supporters. It's against the people they don't like. That's where that feels like it's headed, especially because the people that did it once before four years ago paid little or no price. Pretty scary. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, we will get these great interviews, especially interested in catching up on this new organization. We'll see what American Moment has in store uh, for us and what their plans are. We'll talk with them, and we got a lot more. Don't forget, you can go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and sign up for the Daily Wink there. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Now, we've been talking pro-America. Everybody knows we talk, talk, love to talk about pro-America. But after the pre- uh, President Trump left office, um, and now we see a constellation. That's the word I'll use. Constellation of groups arising and, and saying, hey, we got something we want to talk about. Here's, what we, here's the moment we're in, whether it's America first as an issue, uh, whether it's Donald Trump's successes or uh, failures, whatever you want to do. And one of those groups is American Moment. And American Moment's mission, identify, educate, and credential young Americans, which is always, always popular, by the way. People want to know, how do we get to young Americans who will implement public policy that supports strong families, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all. And uh, very grateful to welcome right now to the program uh, one of the founders of the organization, and he's uh, president also. And I'll get his first name, Saurabh Sharma. Is that how I do, Saurabh? Am I close? You did pretty well. All right, good. So uh, he's the president of American Moment and uh, co-host of the Moment of Truth. So first of all, tell us, why do we need American Moment? I mean, there's other groups out there. I won't bother naming them. But what, why do we need you? What, 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 is, this, what is this organization going to do? Help walk us through that. 
Happy to do so, and thank you for having me on, Ed. American Moments is designed to solve one problem in particular, which is that when President Trump got elected, he did not have the personnel that were required in order to implement the America First agenda that he ran and won on. And so he spent four years being undermined by people inside the House, as it were. And it caused all sorts of problems when it came to designing the policies around an America First agenda, implementing things that he wanted done, and and really making that agenda to happen. And so our goal is to essentially build a personnel pipeline going to the youngest interns and staff assistants that come into Washington, D.C., and selecting for people who understand politics the way that President Trump did, that the way that we do in this America first mold, making sure that they have the skills and competencies they need in order to succeed, and also just selecting for people of good character and fitness to make sure that the mistakes that happened in this last administration never happen again, because this problem isn't going away, and, and we want to be part of solving it. Well, and I think a lot of people that, uh, and I'm actually, as we're talking, I was looking for it, I'll find it. Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I work, she wrote a piece about um, how, and it was aimed at Ronald Reagan in 81, how uh, when you get in, you got all these spots to fill and you got to fill them. And uh, and that personnel, you know, Richard Vagary has been famous for saying personnel is policy. It's so true. Uh, the left does it better than I think um, the center right does. Um, what, what, how does how does the Trump administration or how does Trump fit in to your vision in the sense that maybe he runs again, maybe he doesn't. Um, there'll be other Republicans someday that win? I mean, is it, is it, uh, are you tucking in under the Trump uh, momentum or, you know, it's, it's a difficult balance because you don't want to say, I don't think too loudly, man, Trump failed in personnel. What you want to say is he tried his best and he had a lot of people around him that didn't quite understand what was at stake or something, right? Is that, but how does, how does Trump help or hurt what you're doing? Well, he's the reason we had the opportunity to advance this America first agenda to begin with until he ran the Republican Party wasn't talking about trade or being serious about immigration or supporting families. You know, they, they had this sort of corporate first kind of chamber of commerce agenda that had dominated the party for years and years. And he broke through and gave that worldview airtime, a worldview that, you know, Phyllis was was a huge advocate for in her lifetime and others have been across the last 30 years or so. And so what we see ourselves doing is taking that worldview, those priorities, and systematizing them and selecting for personnel that actually uh, hold those views uh, dearly and, and to their heart. And whether that's President Trump running again in 2024, or whether that's another candidate, and there's a lot of them that at varying levels are advancing this agenda as well, we're trying to tee up the people that will help implement that agenda. And we, and we use that word implement in our mission statement very intently because you can have great ideas, you can run on a fantastic platform, but if you don't have the institutional know-how uh, and, and ability to implement it, well, then we're never going to be able to serve the interests of the American people in the way that we as conservatives want to. Uh, and, and let me say, I didn't think I said earlier, AmericanMoment.org. AmericanMoment.org is the uh, is the website. Um, is, uh, you, you know, on your list of issues, immigration, uh, you mentioned family in the founding statement, not, not necessarily uh, natural for the younger set, right? And the younger set has been beaten into their head. They should be more open. And there's a lot of, at least a lot of anecdotal evidence or the media wants us to think that. Are you, are you, um, are you finding much hostility? Do you find that there's people saying, oh, yeah, that's out of touch? Uh, is it more that you're not bothering to worry about the larger um, set of people you're looking for, the, the subset of people that already agree, with, you know, already on board with the Trump vision and therefore let's get them plugged in? How's that playing out for you? 
You know, it's a both and thing, Ed. Uh, you know, we are focused on a very specific subset of people. But I'll tell you what, you know, Generation Z, Zoomers, as we like to uh, affectionately call them, they kind of look at the way that the millennials and Gen X and baby boomers live their lives and sort of libertine attitude, live and let live. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a family, doesn't matter if you have children, doesn't matter if you settle down, you know, uh, for free will and, and, and hippy dippy stuff. And, and they're, they're choosing a different path. Now, I'm not saying it's the majority of Gen Z, but there is a bigger cadre than ever that has decided, you know, they don't want to live that way. And I see amongst the kids in our network, but also more broadly, a serious and real appetite to get married young, have a family, build a home together, to, you know, work a job that may not be your average service industry job, to maybe go back to working with their hands, to really embrace a, a more traditional way of living because they, they see the way that, that millennials have lived their lives, you know, being 40 and unmarried and angry, maybe two cats and an SSRI addiction, and they just don't want to pick that life for themselves. And so we're fairly bullish and optimistic about the direction that younger generations are going when it comes to these, these socially conservative values. And again, we're talking about American Moment. You go to AmericanMoment.org uh, uh, and you can find out more about this. And by the way, on the Board of Advisors, this is a really good sign for you. Uh, Rachel Bovard, who is really, really good, and uh, Ryan Gerdusky, I'm a big fan of his, and lots of folks, uh, J.D. Vance, too. So it's a, it's a great group. Um, so what, what, what will happen? What are you going to do? American, I go to AmericanMoment.org, say I'm a college student or I'm in my young 20s, and I go, what, what am I, I going to find American Moment? Are you going to do events? Are you going to do networking? Is it talking points? What are, what, what's your delivery? deliverables to to people sure and, and i want to make one thing very clear whether or not you went to college we are still interested in helping you get involved you know conservatives love to talk a big game about how college doesn't matter and four years of liberal indoctrination who cares about that but one uh, one thing you'll see in washington dc and other power centers in this country is they suddenly get cold feet when it comes to their hiring practices they still want to take the same kids who went to Harvard and Yale. And I'm not saying there aren't good conservatives that come out of there, but we are intentionally designing American Moment to not only serve people who are college students and young political staffers, but also people who didn't go to college at all, who are still young and who want to get involved in what we're doing. And so there's a couple ways that people can get involved. We have an interest form up for our conference that's going to be happening in early fall, where we're going to try and gather together a coalition of these you know, young America first people who are interested in getting involved in a substantive way. We're we're also doing a fellowship program where we're going to pay and pay well for young people to get their first job in Washington, D.C., 10 weeks this summer. You can find the application for that on our website. It closes on March 30th. We've also curated a collection of books and essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, every level of content complexity uh, of good stuff that explains how to think about the world that we do, because it is a little bit different than what the traditional conservative movement has said. You know, we are thinking critically about how we support families or trade or immigration. And so how to think about those issues, you can find information like that on our website. But basically, it goes back to our, our mission statement. We identify, we find people who think like we do, we educate them in the basics of what they need to know on public policy, and we credential them after we've vetted them for all of our criteria and help them get involved in politics in Washington and elsewhere. 
Uh, and again, AmericanMoment.org, AmericanMoment.org. Um, you, um, uh, that's I'm, I looked at that uh, before we talked. This fellowship program, that's a good one. I think I think, I think you're really onto something. Is um, is how does again? Let me say it differently. How does President Trump? Um, you know what? If he doesn't run for office, does it matter to you? Does it, if he does run, it helps? What's your? How do you feel about that? Or is that not where you're? You're not going to spend your time talking about that. Well, again, we want to be able to help any uh, conservative administration. Maybe they'd even be, you know, Democrats to staff up. And so, you know, we, we're agnostic as far as that goes. But I will say, Ed, one thing I hope is that President Trump is really careful if he choose, does choose to run again about the advisors he surrounds himself with, because he's getting a lot of bad advice uh, as he governed over the last four years. And I think that's ultimately part of why he lost his reelection effort, aside from other issues that, that were obviously very public. <laughs> and so if he yeah. does run again, I would hope, and I know a lot of people are like-minded, that he picks a set of advisors who understand, again, why he won in 2016. Because there were, we had uh, a buffet of choices back then. You know, there were 16 candidates and more running, and he running away won that and and he won it for a reason and and interrogating that and remembering that it's not the same old George W Bush conservatism that that we were we were led to believe was the way for the last 20 years it was something different it was an America first agenda and so i hope that he surrounds himself by with advisors who similarly share that passion and and want to help him implement it very good. All right. Well, it's very interesting. I'm glad. Thanks for taking the time. AmericanMoment.org. We're talking with the president and co-founder, Saurabh Sharma. And uh, go to AmericanMoment.org. Uh, excuse me, AmericanMoment.org. Sign up there. Uh, get in the loop. And uh, keep us in, in the form. I think it's a very smart idea, and I'll be interested to, to continue tracking that. So thank you, sir. Thank you, Ed. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, very, very, very important, actually. Uh, the most important thing, I think, uh, about this is that helping people network into jobs. You, everybody thinks they want to work here, and having somebody to get you networked in is really cool. AmericanMoment.org. All right, we'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And our old friend, Dr. Brett M. Decker, is with us. Dr. Decker, of course, is a professor at Defiance College over in uh, Ohio and has been a New York Times bestselling author, author of numerous books, and a journalist uh, in the Wall Street Journal Asia uh, Bureau and also at the editorial page of the Washington Times and many other places along the way, uh, especially um, a... a um, insightful on the economy. And so welcome, Dr. Decker. First of all, um, the the Biden so-called COVID stimulus, almost two trillion dollars. Um, suddenly, a whole bunch of people are discovering that trillions are lots to spend and they're worried about the uh, the debt. I'm not sure that's real. It may just be politics. But what's the reality of this uh, of this massive spending bill? You know, um, it's, it's, it's pretty frightening just on financial terms. One thing is our economy is, you know, less than $20 trillion, which we're the largest by far in the world, right? But our economy is around $20 trillion, so under $20 trillion, So this is like 10% of an entire year's economic output, right? Our GDP, everything bought, sold, traded, whatever in the country, uh, any services all into our GDP, this is 10, gobbles up 10% of that. And that's, that's pretty scary when you're thinking of the largest economy in the world is frittering away 10% on government programs. And, you know, they're misadvertising it like as a stimulus, like we're giving all this money to people like, like the $1.9 trillion um, are all going to people who are then going to spend it at restaurants and, and malls and things. Well, you know, people are getting something like $1,400. Some people are, some people aren't. 
but most of it's going to all kinds of liberal pet projects, right? So it's just a it's just a usual Washington, um, uh, a kind of indisciplined spending and using uh, using the pandemic as an excuse to pass it. So you know, I think what you see, right? Democrats, however they got this election, now they're paying off their constituencies with this big uh, uh, pork laden uh, Washington spending bill, and it, you know, one of the biggest in history, and 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 uh, you know, it's pretty frightening. We're talking with Dr. Brett M. Decker. Um, the the uh, so now suddenly I see even in the New York Times um, there's discussion. Well, housing prices are going up too quick. Um, you know we're we're seeing some signs of what could be inflation. I don't know if I believe it. I mean, it feels like any time that there's um, I, the, the media will run to try to head towards a crisis. Is that I mean is that where we're headed? I'm, I, I, by the way, I looked at the 1.9 trillion. I think more than half of it is not spent until next year, a year from now. It's kind of pre-appropriation, is how uh, I heard a lawmaker describe it. It's actually meant to be triggered in 2022 when it will be more valuable for an election cycle. By the way, but but is is inflation uh, a possibility or is that not really real? I, I mean, I think eventually inflation has to come because. If you look at our debt, right, our debt, like our debt's about $28 trillion. Well, if you look at this $2 trillion spending bill, it, it alone gets us to $30 trillion. Well, if you think about that, when, when we have an economy of around $20 trillion, right, look at your, your debt, your national debt, 50% of an entire year's spending. It's, I mean, at some point, our country has to pay off that debt one way or the other. The most usual way to do it is inflate your inflate your currency so you pay people back in in pennies on the dollar, right? So I think when your debt mm-hmm. starts spiraling out of control, eventually inflation has to happen because you can't keep piling on debt at this at this rate. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Brett M. Decker, and um, so all right now sh- shifting gears a little bit because you've been an observer of politics as well as uh, e- economics, and this is one I want to hone in because you were a journalist for many years, a couple decades. Um, President Biden has refused to he's not had a single press conference. He's only answered maybe two or three questions at a time, if at all. Um, at what point is this? Uh, does it matter? I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. He ran for president, and didn't answer any questions, too. Is it are we all sort of wondering why he'll ever do this? Why would he do it? I mean, is it does it matter? Um, I, one, I don't know if anybody really cares, which is kind of frightening, right? Um, you can you can become president by any means by never meeting or the press or talking coming down to your basement, and now you can be president by whatever. You know, I don't know what he's doing. He was obviously playing with his dog, but now that his dog was biting everybody and got sent, you know, got sent back to Delaware. The dog's in the doghouse, right? Well, I don't, I don't know what he's doing <laughs> without his dog there. So, um, I, you know. I think we're in this strange place when the media is just a propaganda arm for one party, one candidate, one president. You can really get away with anything, and that's really not right. You really need that fourth estate to be a check on government power and, and not be its sort of information minister in ministry, right? And that's unfortunately that's what we have. So I think you can get away with it when people are watching uh, ABC, NBC News, and they say everything's great, right? And I, I think that's a, mm-hmm. I think that's a big problem. How about uh, now? The question where you lived for many years over in uh, Asia. How what's what's going on with what's your sense of China? Um, I guess they, um, I, you know, they they think they have a friendlier administration in Biden, but uh, how's their economy? Where are they at? I mean, it's not exactly as simple as it seems to keep that massive economy humming like they do. What what do you what, what do you know about China right now? 
you know, you never know too. You never know exactly what's going on with the Chinese economy because they're they're you know they don't have any honest accounting uh, standards. So we just take what Beijing tells us their economy is essentially. But the one thing we know is COVID did hit them hard, right? If you look at all our stores that were shut down and not selling anything other than like you know Amazon deliveries. Well, how much of that garbage is that, that people buy every day is made in China, right? A lot of it. And if people are buying less, can't go to the store or are limited in going to the store, and definitely retail sales were down a lot in the last year, um, that hits China pretty hard, right? We're their largest export market. So um, if they admit it or not, they have to be hurting just because their factories were down and then their distribution agent like Walmart uh, wasn't selling as much for a, lot, a large part of last year. So um, I, you know, I think China's got to be feeling it too. And they're probably looking for distraction, right? You have a country that big trying to modernize, uh, people feel it pretty quickly if, if things start going wrong. So I think, I think China's definitely feeling some pressure. All right, uh, Dr. Decker. Um, now let me ask you about uh, Congress. Um, you, again, you've watched the ebb and flow of these things for a long time. You've got Chuck Schumer trying to be the majority leader with a 50-50 split. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, being the minority leader in a 50-50 split. Any observations on where this is headed? Is the filibuster really at risk? Uh, what can what do you think's coming? I, you know, I I don't know if Republicans have enough fortitude or have enough stomach to fight too hard right now. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I don't know if the, the filibuster is necessarily at risk, right? I mean, you look at something like this stimulus package getting passed and, you know, if you can have Kamala Harris show up and be the deciding vote, I really don't know if, if Republicans are going to push it that hard. And I, you know, I've heard some people on the Hill say, let them run things into the ground. It'll just help, help us for the midterm, which I think is dangerous thinking, right? Whenever you're thinking, something bad for the country is good for your party. That's not really a winning position, but I hear a lot of Republicans talking that way. Well, and I guess the question I have there is uh, if you can, if you, if you think you can win, I mean, it should happen that the Republicans win the House next time. But, uh, you know, lots of things seem upside down and you put two trillion dollars out on the street as as a sort of uh, infusion of, of uh, uh, towards voters. And then you do H.R. one and try to change the way people vote um, and dramatically impact that pretty soon. You you're, you have headwinds instead of the wind at your back is what I think. All right. One last thing. We're talking with Dr. Decker. You're your early observer years before he ran for president of Donald Trump. What's he going to do next? I think I think right now he's awfully worried about um, his, the financial position of his sort of business empire. And one thing he has to focus a ton on, there are just new cases cropping up or threatened threats to prosecute him or investigate him all over the place, right? All of different enterprises. And that's a pretty major thing to defend that many cases because it costs a lot of money. So, I, you know, I think he's really going to start paying attention to uh, sort of to the bank account and a lot of these troubles that emanated from, uh, you know, the, his opposition trying to go after him and continuing that now. I think uh, I think I think that's going to be his main focus. Um, if you had to take if you had to make a bet today, yeah. do you think if you had to make a bet today, do you think he runs for president? I don't think he does No. You know, I, huh. I think the only reason he runs in four years is if he's really worried about prosecutions of his family and himself, and um, he might need to get that pardon power back. But I don't, I don't think, one, he's going to be a lot older in four years, right? He's already already pretty old. 
And I think, you know, four years is a long time, right? And other people mm-hmm. are going to want it. And um, I think other people are going to start pushing pushing forward. You know, the, the GOP was obviously established, obviously very dissatisfied when he won and then didn't help him out for a lot of his term in office. You know, he slipped through the first time, but I think I think they'll do anything structurally they can to prevent him from getting the nomination, even if the base still wants him next time. Right, right. I think you're right. Well, we'll see. All right, I got to go. Uh, as always, uh, Dr. Brett M. Decker, thank you. New York Times bestselling author, professor, and uh, retired journalist. No longer journaling. He's uh, he's teaching the youth. So appreciate it very much. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, the conservative pro-family broadcast of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a leading voice for the sanctity of life, traditional education, the Constitution, and American sovereignty. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Resolutions are popping up in many state legislatures asking Congress to call a convention to discuss amendments to the U.S. Constitution. These resolutions originate because some people want Congress to vote for a certain constitutional amendment, and Congress hasn't done it, so its proposers have moved on to Plan B and want to use the never-before-used section in Article 5 of our Constitution, which says that if 34 states request Congress to call a convention, Congress must call one. Some of these people want a balanced budget amendment. Some want the Equal Rights Amendment. Some want what is called the Repeal Amendment to allow states to repeal an act of Congress. Some want to get rid of the Electoral College. And one group wants a list of 10 new amendments. Calling a national convention to consider changes to the U.S. Constitution is a very bad idea. Because once a convention is convened, we would have no control over what it does. There are no rules about how delegates would be selected, how they would be apportioned among the states, whether they would have to have a two-thirds majority to vote out an amendment. Former Chief Justice Warren Burger wrote that there is no effective way to limit or muzzle the actions of a constitutional convention. The convention could make its own rules and set its own agenda. Congress or the states might try to limit the convention to one amendment, but there is no way to assure that the convention would obey. I've attended dozens of political conventions, and I've seen every possible rule broken, and there's nothing the delegates can do about it. The guy who controls the gavel is able to exercise total control over the rules, the agenda, the microphones, and the adjournment. Tell your state legislators to vote no on any resolution to call a convention to tamper with our great Constitution. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Anyone pushing for a constitutional convention doesn't have a full appreciation for the brilliance and beauty of the original document ratified back in 1788. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll find all kinds of reasons why a con-con could be a disaster for the American way of life. Check out phyllisschlafly.com and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Let's wrap things up today. I got a couple of things I want to talk to you about. I got an email from one of the listeners, uh, and um, 
I'm going to try to get this guy on the show. He's actually, I, I, want to, I don't want to overstate it, uh, but he's a friend of mine, I guess. I, I'd say that's fine. I can, I can say that. His name is Austin Roos, R-U-S-E. And Austin Roos uh, wrote a piece over in Crisis Magazine. And he basically he's a, he's a longtime fighter for conservative causes, particularly particular excuse me particularly at the UN. He has uh, founded an organization that um, keeps an eye on the UN and and tries to stop the insanity they do up there. His um, his uh, his organization is called CFAM CFAM, and he's got a new book out uh, coming out in the next couple of months called Under Siege: No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. He's a very Catholic guy, and um, so he wrote a piece though too long at the culture wars and i actually think this is kind of a good one a good piece a very thoughtful but made me think as it as as i read through it and um he basically says the culture wars are never ending and for the people that want to see us get our culture back and are afraid of all the kinds of insanity that's happening you kind of keep hoping that you're going to get to an end of it and he basically says it's never going to end he kind of makes a sort of biblical argument that it's never going to end because while we're on this uh, earth and the people are broken and 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 uh, flawed as, as as we all are you're going to have these battles but he does also go into it basically does say how how the left overruns us and in particular he's referring to uh, the the language used as well as the images and the and all the things that are around us and and in particular he's talking about uh, the p- pornography and the sexualization of our culture and all and it's very compelling and um, one of the things that um, when you get to the very end of this piece, he basically says, you know, um, we're never going to end. It's never going to end and it's never over. You never lose. And he, he sort of he sort of challenges people that say we've already lost the culture war um, and it's over. And Rod Dreher is one of them who, you know, is the guy who promotes kind of going off and uh, and living in a community away from everyone else. And Austin Roos takes the other approach. He says, basically, um, you always have to fight on. That's the point. And uh, the culture wars are never lost. They're not lost um, because that's not the nature of it. And But he does kind of, he has said how... Um he does. He has made throughout the piece. He makes uh, points about how often the culture wars and, and the left have infiltrated uh, who we are and influenced what we're about. And it's um, on one level, it's when you get th- two thirds of the way through the essay, you say to yourself, "Boy, this is daunting. We're never going to get out from it." And then at the end, you say, "Huh, this is just what we have to do." We have to be faithful to fight back, and that's I would say the American experience too. Americans know that it's always worth fighting for and it's never over. It's always worth fighting for and it's never over. And whether it's the culture war or the war for America, the rule of law, at our heart, we are an optimistic people that believe that we can come back from this, that believe that we can make it work, that believe that we can uh, take back the country. That's at the heart of America. That's the heart of American experience. And I think that's one of the ways to say what Austin Roos is saying. And I encourage people and basically say, you're always going to lose some. You're always going to lose some. You're always going to lose some, uh, and and you're always going to find uh, that you sort of lose ground, and um, and when you do, you have to remember back to the Austin Roos piece that you're uh, that you are going to um, that you're gonna you got to keep fighting. You got to be fighting. In fact, it's the old um, you know I think it was Mother Teresa said we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. You know, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep fighting because it's worth fighting for. And when you feel like the success isn't happening, that's even when you have to double down more. 
you have to double down more. So uh, really good piece. I'll put it up on social media. You can check it out. Austin Roos is his name, and he is uh, on Twitter, I believe. Let me make sure I get it for you. His Twitter handle is at Austin Roos at Austin Roos, uh, just as it sounds. Austin, like the city of Austin, and uh, Roos, R-U-S-E. Uh, well worth checking him out, at Austin Roos. All right, uh, that's all I've got for now, and uh, we will uh, wrap things up. Don't forget, you can reach out to me, Pro America Report, kick through on the email there. You can send me an email there. Thank you, as always, to our great... Um, uh, friend Todd filling in for Noah. Todd is our uh, Noah is our technical director. He'll be back tomorrow. Uh, but uh, Noah's uh, excuse me. Noah is, and he'll be back tomorrow. And thank you to Todd for filling in. A lot of moving pieces. Thank you to Joanna for helping us book all these guests. And thank you for listening. Again, visit ProAmericaReport.com and uh, sign up for the Daily Wink there and especially track down all of these great interviews, these great people that have come on with us. All right? It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. We will be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Talk to you